welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, I'm joined by co-host Connie Dobriva, and we feature Dr. Cheryl Crochere. Join us as we dive into the world of sustainable transportation with Cheryl, an advocate, researcher, and consultant. With a diverse academic background spanning women's studies, transportation planning, and cultural anthropology, Cheryl brings a unique perspective to the table. She discusses her lifelong passion for sustainable transportation and discover how she combines the power of data, storytelling, and genuine human connections to inspire individuals to envision a future with alternative modes of transportation. As the executive director of the nonprofit Sacramento and 50 Corridor Transportation Management Associations, Cheryl's current focus is on creating a groundbreaking travel behavior change program. Tune in to hear her vision of helping 100,000 Sacramentans drive a little less and experience a whole lot more joy and well-being. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessa, and my pronouns are she, hers. My name is Connie, and my pronouns are she, hers. And today we are here with Cheryl Crochere. She is with Sacramento and 50 Corridor TMAs. Thank you so much for joining us, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we jump into it, first things first, how are you connected to AEP? Yeah, that's a good question. I am relatively new to the organization. So even though I've known about it for a long time, because I'm a planner by training, I'm a transportation planner. Um, so I've been in the um, on the in the environmental side of transportation planning for many years, but I just attended my first AEP conference in Tahoe back in April. So it's my first time engaging directly with the organization. And that's where I met you, and how uh, we got you roped you into this podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. We are walking into the happy hour at the same time and got to chatting. And when you were telling me about the work you did, I was like, Hey, so we have this thing, this podcast. (laughs) So thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. And I guess to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about the work? So, you know, we introduced you and we were talking before we got started is you're with two agencies right now you're running to. So can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with the, the Sacramento TMA and the 50 corridor TMA? Yeah. So I run two different nonprofit organizations and we're in the early stages of merging them into a single organization. So that won't be the case forever, but both of these organizations, they're kind of sister organizations. And so one of them, the Sacramento TMA, which stands for Transportation Management Association, um, mostly serves the city of Sacramento and especially the downtown area and has uh, many member organizations that are large employers and small employers, but employers mostly in the downtown area. So that includes a lot of the state agencies that have their offices downtown, but we also have private and nonprofit um, universities and, you know, medical centers as members as well. And then the 50 Corridor Transportation Management Association represents a lot of the eastern suburbs of Sacramento along the U.S. 50 corridor. 
so that's where the name comes mm-hmm. from. And both of these organizations represent this kind of unique niche in the transportation world and also in the environmental world. Um, the Sacramento TMA is more of a traditional organization. Like many metro areas have a transportation management association or a transportation management organization that serves to like work with employers and educate their employees about commute options and sustainable transportation options for getting to and from work. And usually that includes the downtown area and, you know, um, helps reduce congestion and the environmental impacts associated with it. Um, so that's what the Sacramento TMA is. The 50 corridor is a bit more unique in that we do have members, employers that we work with to educate their employees about sustainable transportation. But we also work in residential communities. And the communities that we serve are typically newer sort of master planned communities that as a condition of their development approval have to mitigate their air quality impacts. And so the research shows that the most effective way to do that is by reducing people's transportation impacts and getting them to shift some of their driving trips to sustainable modes. And so that's what we do in these residential communities is we educate people, incentivize them to trade driving trips for other types of trips. Um, And there's sort of a whole new world opening up with SB 743, which is a California law that has changed the way we measure environmental impacts on transportation. So um, we're now also talking to many agencies about doing VMT mitigation, um, the similar kind of programming. So um, yeah, that's what those two organizations do. And um, it'll be nice when they're merged into one so that there's a little bit less overhead uh, and administrative work involved in running them. Yes, that sounds like a lot. And as you're speaking about this and these programs and the members and the communities you work with, and this is a lot of different stakeholders. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of diversity within, I would think, kind of the incentives and people being forced to do things by policy and people wanting to do things, Mm -hmm. you know, as a, you know, member of the community and people are unfamiliar with about it, but need to change some of their habits. It just sounds um, very complex (laughs) and challenging, I'm sure. Yes. There's also these two levels. There's like the policy side of it, which I'm familiar with and versed in because I'm a planner by training, but all of the reasons and justifications for these sort of mandates that exist are not helpful when you're talking to somebody, you know, at an event or in their home or, you know, in the community. And so there's sort of two different languages that we have to use depending on our audience, Mm -hmm. which is like when we're talking to policymakers or, you know, cities and counties and and people in um, government, 
And then there's like the way we talk about our work when we're talking to the people that we're trying to, um, you know, bring into the fold of sustainable transportation. And you kind of just touched on this or what I was going to ask in kind of changing topics slightly, but I wanted to see uh, or learn more about how you got to this position. Like Mm. what was your career path that led you to this role and your background, as you mentioned, as a planner? Yeah, I actually have kind of an unconventional background. So I have a BA in women's studies and a, a PhD in cultural anthropology. And then I also have a master's in transportation planning. So for my PhD work, I was actually studying planners and how they communicate with the public or you know, struggle to communicate their expertise to the public, how they struggle to engage the public. And you could say in the course of that work, I just sort of went native and decided to become a planner myself. <laughs> and like a gonzo planner. What I love it. Gonzo anthropologist. <laughs> when I started my my master's program at UCLA in planning, my classmates all thought of me as a mole. Like I was there studying them and learning the language of planning, but I didn't really have any intention of becoming a planner. But after two years and plus some, I just was really happy. And I had some work experience in the planning world and I was very happy working as a planner. And I saw my opportunities in academia and they were less appealing to me. So I just... I stuck with it and it's been great. That's so cool. What a, what an interesting path. And I'm curious what, um, what inspired you to study planners, right? <laughs> As a part of your PhD, that's not being a planner and choosing to study planners. I'm really curious about what motivated you to do that and what role that's played in the future choices. Yeah, I actually got interested in planning at a pretty young age. So in high school, I was involved in an environmental group at my high school, and we got really involved in local policy and actually advocating for policies in our county that would protect agricultural land from development. And in particular, because this section of the county was along a river. And so we saw the threat of you know, lots of development and the effect it would have on that river. And so I learned a lot about urbanism and urban sprawl and even like the economics of public finance and um, just got a crash course in Mm -hmm. transportation planning and planning more broadly as like a 16-year-old. And that interest always stayed with me Um, And I, you know, explored some other things like in college, but development, you know, um, land use, transportation planning were always things I was naturally drawn to. And so eventually I came back to it in a professional way. Um, But I think I got interested in studying planners because I wanted to understand Like I learned as a 16-year-old studying these things as a lay person that 
there's a thing called induced demand, where if you widen a road or you build new roads, it doesn't just alleviate congestion. It actually encourages people to drive more. And 20 years later, that's still not common sense in the transportation world. We're still widening highways and building out new roads in ways that we know are going to encourage people to drive more and emit more, um, you know, contribute to more emissions. So that wasn't the only question that I was interested in, but I was interested in just how planners think and then how they engage with, you know, people on the ground and, um, yeah, so it was kind of a roundabout way, but themes that I've been interested in for a, a really long time, just having been sort of an activist from a young age. I have so many questions. I know. <laughs> Go ahead, too. Connie. <laughs> yeah, no, and from there, right, transportation planning makes sense. And then sort of how did you move from being a senior transportation planner to what you're calling, right, sustainable transportation planning. What is that and how did you move into this realm? Yeah, so I was really fortunate um, to work for many years in consulting with a firm, Fair and Peers, that's, you know, mostly based here in California, but has offices all over and um, got to work on a lot of different types of projects, um, a lot of environmental impact analysis, um, transit planning, bike pedestrian planning, grant writing. So there is one project that's very near and dear to my heart that really allowed me to bring all of my areas of expertise together in one project. And it was a one, one that we did with um, Los Angeles Metro, which mm-hmm. is the transit and transportation agency for the whole LA area. It was a project called Understanding How Women Travel. So it was the first effort of its kind in North America to understand women's travel behavior and how transit, but all transportation infrastructure could better serve women's needs. And I led a big research component of that project where we acted like anthropologists and spent over a hundred hours in the field, riding buses and trains and observing women and men in stations, at bus stops, in buses, in trains, and like how they use the space, how they interact with each other. So that was an awesome project. And just as a consultant, I got to work on some very cool projects like that, where we were doing innovative work, like trying to think how can transit agencies or cities and counties do things differently. I also did a lot of work with SB 743. So this law that changed how we measure environmental impacts in California, Um, because that's new, a lot of projects I did were helping um, cities and counties figure out how to implement that law. So how to change the way that they study the environmental impacts to transportation. And um, that was really the the segue into my current work because when you study 
okay, VMT, vehicle miles traveled, is like the metric that we use to measure driving as an environmental impact. When you look at the research that exists on how to reduce VMT, how do you get people to drive less? Some of the most effective strategies are education. So it's what my organizations do um, are some of the most effective strategies. It's talking to people and educating them about their options. So because I knew that literature and that research, um, and I knew that these organizations have kind of blown under the radar for a long time, I saw this opportunity to get into this work. And I've always been curious because as a consultant, we would cite the research and tell our clients, oh, you might set up this kind of program or join one of these organizations and then you meet your requirements or you've mitigated your impact. And sometimes the client would come back and be like, well, what does that actually look like? Or like, Mm -hmm. how does that actually work? And you know, not that we threw up our hands, but we were a little bit like, well, that's not really our expertise. You know, we can provide some generalized guidance, but I was curious, like, what does that look like on the ground? How do you actually engage with people to get them to ride transit more or bike more? So when I had the opportunity to come over to the nonprofit world, it was because I had this background in the research and in that policy change. And then because I wanted to work with people more on the ground. And I also have a little bit of a background in like political campaigns and union organizing. So the idea of talking to people one-on-one or in groups and trying to convince people to do something differently is also sort of in my wheelhouse. So this was really a perfect job for me. I'm like, which way do I have like 10 I questions? I, you know, I'm like, I'm which one do I want to ask? Place. No, I love it. I, <laughs> I am, I am so excited about this. Um, and learning from you and listening to this, it's very energizing. And I think, so one of my questions, you know, were the environmental leadership chronicles. And so I'm thinking about leadership and I think, you know, you are executive director for these two soon to be one um, nonprofits and with your background, um, you know, and expertise as an anthropologist, and of course, and planner, and now I assume managing a team and managing people, like how do you approach leadership? Like what are some of your tools or methods in, you know, you work with the public and you have all this skill set and practice, but how do you do it with the, the team that you're working with day to day? And um, you're, you're a professional, you're, you're a, profession, a people professional. <laughs> so how do you approach leadership? Like, I know it's pretty broad, but um, I'm, I also am assuming you're very thoughtful about this too. So I'm putting that broad question out there to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. I think, I think my training as a planner is really rooted in this idea that like, it's important to have consensus on what your values are and what your goals are like as a community. And then you can plan accordingly, but the you have to know what you're trying to achieve in order to like have a plan of getting there. And I think that's part of my leadership style too, is like, 
we don't necessarily as an organization, because we're a very small team, there's uh, five of us total. And a couple of those are very part-time, but um, we don't necessarily have our like values written down somewhere, but we, we do have sort of in practice values of, you know, not just work-life balance, but like being happy is important. And also I think there's, there should be some continuity between the work that you're doing and the way that you do the work. So like all nonprofits have this challenge of burnout. Like, you know, we just don't have the resources of many private organizations. You don't have the people. And so I feel like that's the number one enemy that we're trying to avoid is burning out. And on the other hand, we're trying to persuade people and invite people to use sustainable transportation more. Almost any form of sustainable transportation is going to take more time and effort than hopping in a car and driving somewhere. So I sort of take that as a challenge. Like if we're asking people to do that, what does it take? you kind of have to slow down a little bit in life. Sometimes it doesn't mean you're going to, you know, give up your car and, you know, just bike everywhere. Like that's not what we're asking people to do. But if you try to be strategic about which trips you can replace with a sustainable mode, it would make a big difference if everybody did that a little bit more. So I think about in order to create culture a culture of sustainable transportation people have to be willing to take a little bit more time getting to their destination if you're going to take more time to get to your destination you kind of have to be willing to take more time with other things or you can't be like super stressed out and focused on productivity in the same way this like grind culture of like, get it all done, get it done fast, get everywhere fast. So, you know, we are not always successful. (laughs) Like we definitely get stressed out and over, you know, stretch ourselves, but we try to create a work culture that would allow us to use sustainable transportation so that we're not so stressed out that we can't like take a little bit extra time getting from point A to point B. And I think the same applies to any kind of environmentally conscious choice that you might use. Like transportation is just my area of expertise, but you know, anything that you're going to do is probably going to take some time and effort. And so trying to build a work culture that is also in alignment with our organization's mission is important. And again, like we just don't have the resources of larger organizations or private organizations. So, you know, I really try to value the relationships that I have with my coworkers and that, you know, we have as a team and value them as human beings Mm -hmm. and recognize that like life happens 
I have two young kids. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So like, you know, life happens with me. Like we have kids, doctor's appointments, kids get sick, they're home and I'm juggling with my husband. And everyone has that at various times in their life in different forms. So yeah, also just trying to, I might not be able to pay people as much as they might earn somewhere else, but I can create a workplace where they are seen and valued as a full human being and where I don't expect work to come at the expense of their humanity. And I think that is important to achieving our mission because we can't be persuasive to people or be welcoming to people and in asking them to change their behavior if we are not seeing them as fully human beings with like real life challenges. So it's like, it's all kind of one thing where you have to meet people where they are, recognize that like, we're not trying to be perfect. We're not trying to get people to radically change their lifestyle. I mean, we would love for people to do that, but it's not realistic. Like we're trying to get lots of people to make small changes to create scale. And if you, and you can't do that with shame, you have to be very like positive and welcoming. And it's hard to be positive and welcoming if you yourself are like stressed out. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So it's like, it's all part of the work we do is to like be genuinely passionate ourselves. And it takes a lot of work to maintain passion. You have to be kind of happy and cared for, I think. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question. But no, some of the ways I think yeah, about work culture. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. I love I love your approach and that you carry it through your life. Um, and I just love what you said that you know, the work has to align and it can't be at the expense of um, people's humanity. I think that's wonderful. Yes, I was, I, I, that statement resonated with me as well. And I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling it seen today because <laughs> I'm very much of like, go, 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 go. Like I'm, a, uh, it's like almost like an, like addictive feeling to the hustle culture. And it's, as I was thinking about this as you're speaking and when I am trying to, I don't know, influence or persuade people into, you know, adopting a new process or taking something on, I feel like, okay, let's go, let's go. Just say yes. Don't ask me questions. Can we please just like move forward because I need to move on to the next thing. And it's, it's not effective. And I feel myself, I'm like, okay, be patient. Let them talk, let them talk. But I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. And so uh, I, that's a really important message for me to hear. And I'm sure a lot of other people as well is like, mm-hmm. you know, is thinking about that time to slow down and um, creating space in your life for the passion to like move forward on like, you know, the collective purpose, the shared values that are bringing us all together. I, oh, I'm going to sit with this today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've taken some inspiration from, uh, there's a group and I'm blanking on their name, but what they do is called deep canvassing, where they they do these kinds of mostly political campaigns around the country 
but they've their their methods have been studied by social scientists and have found to be like actually effective at persuading people. And you know, so what they do is they're going door to door and talking to voters about hot button issues like gay marriage or climate change. And their method is just listen, like have a long conversation with somebody where they mostly listen. And then once they've sort of built the rapport with a person to slowly, gently offer alternative perspectives. And that has been found to be effective at changing people's thinking. And so I think when it comes to challenging the like <clears throat> default option of driving everywhere, um, we also have to listen to people like learn about their lifestyle and then just kind of offer alternatives in a way that feels really gentle and, you know, inviting and yeah, that you have to slow down to like have the patience. Like it's not, you can't change people's minds quickly. You can't create culture change quickly. Everything that that is done well takes a long time so uh, arguing in the twitter comments <laughs> not effective <laughs> unfortunately yeah just I, well, I wish i was kidding i'm mostly kidding um <laughs> i just read um so as you're talking about um you know th this and um another question i wanted to ask you is what your definition is of sustainability. We're talking about sustainable transportation mm -hmm. and influencing people and having conversations and some forms of education. And so I'm curious how you define that. I mean, I think about this a couple different ways. I mean, one of them I think is something has to be financially sustainable. Transportation infrastructure is so costly. And I think, I think even people in the profession, planners and engineers, often discount the true cost of infrastructure and like the maintenance of them. And then people who are just using the roads or the trains and whatever also have no idea how costly these things are. And I feel like for something to be truly sustainable, we have to have a plan. We have to be able to maintain it and eventually replace it or, you know, repair it. Like we want to think about infrastructure for its lifetime and have a plan in place for how that infrastructure is going to be used and maintained. And I, I think the reason that's so important is because it doesn't get done. It gets discounted. So a lot of places build out infrastructure and then 20 years later don't have enough money to maintain it. And so then the roads are getting potholes and people are frustrated and that just encourages more greenfield development because people want the nice new thing. But we're just gobbling up land instead of planning for and really caring for the infrastructure that we've already built. So I think 
you know, that's a key piece that's been missing that kind of contributes to unsustainable development. Um, but I think part of that is also trying to like actually get the most out of the things that we build. Um, you know, and making it cost effective. Like we build out these big roads so that we can drive without any congestion. That's actually not a good use of money. Like a well-used road will have congestion on it because it means people are using it. If it's free-flowing traffic 24-7, you've probably wasted a bunch of money on something that people aren't actually using that much. On the other hand, I think we do things like build really beautiful sidewalks with like landscape buffers next to them and then put a bike lane in a roadway with just a paint strip. Mm -hmm. I see this in the communities that I serve a lot because they're suburban. And so it's great to have bike lanes. It's such an improvement over no bike lanes. But when you're talking about like an arterial roadway with speeds of 45 or 50 miles an hour, there's not many people who feel safe using that bike lane, especially when there's like scrap metal that's going to, and like gravel that's getting pushed into it. And then meanwhile, nobody's using the sidewalk because it's a 45 mile an hour road and you have to walk like two miles to get between destinations. So, you know, a more sustainable option there would have been don't put in a bike lane, don't build a sidewalk, just put an asphalt path next to the road where pedestrians and bicyclists can use a shared path that's off the roadway and asphalt is cheaper than cement. So there's like simple things we can do that are more, that could be more effective than sometimes the like costly design, like standards that we're required to do. But I think sustainability is about like thinking about not just will something last or will it get people to do the more like sustainable or environmentally friendly thing, but literally what is the value that we're getting out of this use of resources? And is there a more effective way? Like, can we get more value using less resources? And maybe that's kind of what it comes down to is the resources. Like money is the, you know, most critical resource but also just land and, um, you know, all the other things that go into our built environment. Yeah, I, that's such a good example about the bike lanes, the painted lanes, and then the paved sidewalk versus the asphalt. Because as you're describing this, I'm imagining it and I'm thinking, oh, that sounds terrifying. I would never ride in that bike lane. And then you laid it out so clearly. So it's one of those things, like when you hear it, it's so obvious, but, um, I know people just kind of get in their, get in their lanes. And I'm thinking like San Diego, there's been a lot of, um, that's where I'm based. And there's been a lot of, um, bike lanes created recently, the past few years. And a lot of, uh, a lot of comments about where those are placed and the, um, 
sustainability of them. I think, you know, that that's a really good example. Oh, like near the water, near the beaches and things? Uh, no, they're actually um, in more kind of like urban neighborhoods, but they took up, well, and this as a transportation planner, they took up a lot of parking spaces for local businesses and there's not a lot of other transportation options. And the way the lanes are designed, and I'm not a planner, but as a pedestrian and someone who drives a car, um, it's there are some blind spots where mm-hmm. the way you turn um, and the way the bike lanes go through some of these intersections and it's kind of you got to be super focused and alert, which you always should be anyway. But it's, mm-hmm. I think when you're used and you're familiar with these neighborhoods and these intersections and it's, you know, your like local corner store and you're going down there. And then now all of a sudden it's changed and there's these curbs that are like two thirds in the middle of the street and parking spaces that I don't know if they're parking spaces. It's just very, mm-hmm. um, it feels chaotic. But yeah. like you said, I mean, part of it's changed too. And so part of it's changed, it's education. I'm sure there's a very good explanation why they are the way they are. I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, uh, there's been, I know that, you know, locally the city and mayor are very proud of all the bike lanes installed and it's great. And like going that direction, but, um, the bikers, the cyclists aren't happy and the businesses aren't happy. So I don't know. I'm yeah, not a I'm, just... I'm just I'm fascinated by simple solutions and the simplicity of thinking that can really be so beneficial as you're talking. I thought I'm in every CEQA document, I'm gonna write that there's a sidewalk on one side of the road and a bike lane on the other. <laughs> right? Because you look at these big roads in the inland empire and who needs two sets of sidewalks adjacent to an industrial warehouse? Uh, completely unnecessary. So it's um I love that you are then taking these ideas and implementing them, right? taking um, the planning world and then implementing it in the real world, which I know can be difficult sometimes um, because transportation planning oftentimes is just done on paper, right? And then the reality mm. of how it gets implemented is um, very different. Um, what I'm curious about is in addition to, you know, we touched a little bit about your um, leadership kind of, style or leadership mantra, but how have you, um, how has your leadership changed and coming from sort of a research and a PhD environment to a, a planning and consulting field and now being in the nonprofit realm where you are educating or reaching out to the community, what have you um, maybe learned or what's been surprising about the way that your leadership has changed and the way that you have to show up as a leader in these different from mm-hmm. consulting to the, the the public sector or the nonprofit sector. Yeah, some ways I think my leadership style didn't change that much, mm-hmm. but I think what has become clear to me is how my style was maybe not the best fit in the consulting world. Mm-hmm. There were just ways in which, because I think I always really enjoyed relating to people on a very like human level. And I prided mm-hmm. myself as a consultant in translating like wonky things into easy to understand language. Um but I think there's a lot of incentives in the consulting world to use lots of words and sound very smart 
And, you know, that just wasn't my style. And I think it worked. I think a lot of the people I worked with really enjoyed my style, but I also found, you know, there were just times when I felt like maybe my expertise wasn't being valued as much because I didn't perform my expertise in the same way that many people do. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, that's one thing if I could like change about the planning world or the environmental world is like, if there was a way to more often kind of cut through the performance and the like expertise and the knowledge and talk more honestly about challenges and failures, I feel like everyone would benefit. But it felt it feels like in so many spaces, there is this need to always show the the good results and not the bad ones or always like spin the story in a way that makes it a success or like celebrates the success, which is great. Like, there's no reason not to do that. But it just kind of crowds out the discussions about things that didn't work. And so I think one of the reasons we sort of do the same things mm. over and over again is because we're never actually sharing the the hard stuff about what didn't work or what kind of failed. And, you know, I, I think that's another thing that I find just refreshing in my current role is that as a nonprofit and kind of in this little niche that we're in, I actually feel like we have a lot of room to experiment and fail. Like we can, and people recognize that we're operating in this post pandemic world where like we're still figuring it out because for so many years, what organizations like mine did was focus on people's commute trips and people aren't commuting as much. And so Mm -hmm. we really have to rethink this programming and we're not always successful. Like we try things and they don't work. And then we try it again in a slightly different iteration. And it's really refreshing to like be in a team and to have people at the agencies that I work with that are open to that and accepting of that. Whereas I think in, you know, when you're in the public sector, when you're in the private sector, you have to deliver results. There's just not as much room to make mistakes or to be honest about mistakes and learn from them. So yeah, it's interesting how I don't know that I changed that much, but I feel like just being in a different environment, I feel different about the way that I show up. Gosh, and I just, I love that. I I love the way that you put that because as we go through our career, sometimes we end up in spaces that don't fit the way that we like to think or the way that we like to work. And I love the fact that you were able to take all the most nourishing and exciting things about your education and your work experience, and then parlay them into a space where you feel fulfilled, where you can work at the speed with the level of safety um, that is comfortable for you, and then also be in a space that innovates. Um, So that's just been lovely to talk to you about this and to hear. And and I think you're a great example of how you don't have to be in a box. You can, as you change your career, you can morph and experiment. And it's okay if you tried something. And 
I wouldn't, I don't want to say failed, but you spent seven years as an, as a transportation planner and then said, Hey, wait a minute, I'm seeing an opportunity and maybe I'm not as happy as I could be in this space. I could move into a different space. So I love that. Yeah. And I would just say like, as a piece of advice to people like early in their careers or anywhere in their career, I personally have had a lot of success, like finding little niches that other people are not paying attention to and then making it my own. I think a lot of people are drawn to like the super popular, like hot, sexy topics or like industries. And there's a lot of competition and it's hard to sort of make a name for yourself. I think there's like an underrated path that you can take where you take the thing that nobody else is thinking about and there's like no expectation and then you can do what you want with it and not feel like so much pressure to I don't know get it right or yeah I I I just think that's an underrated path that is such a that is such a brilliant piece of advice and I just I I really love the way that you think thank you for that (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I agree. I that's a um we unfortunately need to wrap up. Um I'm sure Connie, I don't know. I have so many more questions, but um I'm like stay on time, Jessa. So with that, thank you so much for sharing everything. This has been wonderful. Um we'll get up in or excuse me, we'll get to our wrap up. Oh my gosh. Wrap rapid. up rapid five. Thank you. I'm like, oh, tongue tying myself. All right. <laughs> so Cheryl, what is your favorite daily habit? My favorite daily habit is probably, I don't do it every day, but when I can, I ride my kids to preschool on a bike, on an e-bike. Sometimes my husband and I both bike and the kids are on the bike and it just makes everyone feel good. Oh, that's great. What are three things you take to a deserted island? Books. Maybe if I wasn't just focused on my survival, I would probably just say books. If I had to really think about my survival, I'd probably put like some sort of fire starting device and like a knife in there, but... (laughs) Yeah, books. That's the planner in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, what is your favorite environmental policy? Hmm. I just have to say CEQA because it's shaped so much <laughs> of my career. And yeah, it's really a model in this country for, you know, it has its problems, but it does a lot of good for the, it has really good intentions. Uh, what is your favorite flora or fauna? Hmm. Um, here in Sacramento, I live near the American river. So I spend a lot of time down by the river and, uh, when it's quiet, I often see river otters. Oh, I really like, they're very cute and yeah. Fun to watch. Okay. And then finish this thought. Wouldn't it be cool if? Wouldn't it be cool if cities and counties and states spent as much money on transit and active transportation as they did on infrastructure to support cars? 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Cheryl. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.